last week we were in 2 Peter 2, 11 and 12, which was godly living. And uh, this morning it's godly living in everyday life. Um, Peter is going to dive now into the nitty gritty of godly living. Uh, about a year ago, we had an architect draw up some simple outdoor components on the building things we were hoping to do uh, to just facilitate movement, and we wanted to have a cohesive look. And so one particular item was an overhang at our basement exit. Currently, it's wide open. You open the door. If it's raining, you're getting soaking wet. Uh, But drawing this overhang involved working around uh, the AC units, and this opens up my beef with architects. If you're an architect, I don't have a beef with you. Just in general, uh, this is my, my frustration. I always admire the work of an architect, but they have the ability to gloss over the practical sometimes. They just move right past that. Um, and I'm sure you don't if you're an architect. But either way, with this architect, I was very specific. I said, I don't want to move any of the AC units to install an overhang. So draw something nice. But also keep in mind, we don't want to move any existing components. Sure enough, he comes back with these uh, nice drawings and a nice little invoice as well. And the first thing I check, as you can imagine, is the overhang. There was a couple other components drawn as well, but I checked the overhang. And sure enough, I look and what looks to me like squiggly lines that involve moving uh, the AC unit. And he tells me, Kenny, don't worry. You just have to move it six inches. But we're clear. We didn't want to move any of the components. We didn't want to move it at one inch because if you need to move some mechanical unit, you have to involve an engineer and you have to involve AC guys. And anytime you involve people, it involves money. So I didn't want that. You see, the architect drew up something that was simple in theory. In his mind, you just shift it a little bit. It makes his drawing simpler. Just shift a mechanical unit Uh, Six units, uh, six inches, something that's connected into a block building with specific outputs and inputs, something that would require a specialist, even if we were moving it one inch. But when he says it, it sounds very simple in theory. But when you get around to the practical side of his drawing, it becomes more complicated. It becomes more difficult. You see, as you dive into the nitty details of things, the just six inches ends up taking all your focus. I don't remember every detail he put on the drawings, but I remember one thing. He wants me to move a mechanical unit by six inches. Peter, unlike this architect, doesn't gloss over the somewhat sticky details involved in living a godly life. Even in his summary of 11 and 12 He showed us details that need to be taken care of because he recognizes the reality of sticky details and he shows us exactly why and how we're to overcome them. In verses 11 and 12 of this chapter, he gave us that general call to godly living, but he coupled it with some specific actions centered on our inner life and our outward actions. Uh, He made it clear that we must think and act biblically and that means we need to change our mind and align our behavior. In this next portion, and it's going to take us all the way into chapter 3, though I'm not going to cover that this morning, he's going to look at godly living, a change of mind and change of action in regard to our society, specifically on our government, our work, our marriages, and our church. He shows that we're to be a testimony to an unsaved world 
And the discussion begins with a look at how we act toward our government. This is verses 13 through 17. It says here, Submit yourselves to every ordination of man for the Lord's sake. And if you're going to highlight something in your Bible, that's something to underline. Whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now it's helpful to understand Peter's context because you might look and say, yeah, well, Peter has no idea what our government's like. Well, The government he was referring to was not especially fair or righteous. Uh, There were laws in place to protect and to honor uh, and, and allow you to live life without the fear of that. The problem was those laws could be and often were ignored uh, to permit abuse and persecution. And sadly, Christians were often the object of that abuse. As one writer notes, Peter desires to provide examples of good works and I would say godly living, done by the one most likely to be mistreated in the world's institutional economy. And what the author is saying there is he's giving examples of how we act, and the context of that is the Roman world. The Roman world had very specific laws, and oftentimes those laws were advantageous, but we're entering a time where Rome wasn't honoring their laws, and so they were zeroing in on believers and attacking believers. This is Nero's time. This is the guy who burns Christians as lampposts and burns half of Rome or more and blames it on Christians. This is the guy who is ramping up persecution. And so Peter lays out some principles of how we respond to government, responses that would glorify God and point to his salvation. I want to give us the general principle up front. The general principle is submission, to obey, to be subject to the rule. Yet, we must understand the how and why. We need to understand how in the world we do this and then why we do this. First and foremost, and he starts with that, the general principle is submit, and he says, for the Lord's sake, it's done for our Savior. Why do you submit to government at all? And the overarching principle is for your Savior. We don't obey for the sake of ourselves, We don't obey for the sake of the government. Our obedience is driven by our Lord. In the context that he gives it, he says, for the Lord's sake. And then he says, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. He's saying to them, hey, you're going to submit to this government because of Jesus Christ. You are free. We serve the higher power. Yet don't use that as a reason for selfish indulgence or malicious intent. Instead, use that freedom to serve God. So you have to ask yourself as we start out looking at godly living in regard to our government, which let's be honest, no matter where you are, it never looks great. What prompts your obedience or loyalty? What prods you to obey the rules and the laws? What drives you 
to submit. And I put a couple options. Is it personal gain? Sometimes we will obey because we gain from that. Here's another one. Is it political party? Sometimes we obey or disobey because of who's in control or is it the Lord your God? Why do you obey the government? And all of these are going to drive us to reflect on motive, reflect on our heart. What is the purpose? Why, why in the world would I listen? And Peter makes it very clear, because of Jesus Christ. We submit for the Lord's sake, uh, but that is done reasonably. This is not a call to engage in the ridiculous or absurd. And I think I pronounced that right. I've been wrestling with pronouncing that word. I have Dutch parents, and so they've condemned me to mispronouncing certain words because of my upbringing. And Heather likes to make fun of me uh, for that. And even say Dutch heritage. By the way, I said it right that time. Uh, this is not a call to be ridiculous. We're not mandated to stand on our heads because the government science says it promotes thinking, so they've commanded it. And I'm sure you can pick up on my pun a little bit. Notice that the overarching purpose of government is for punishing evil and rewarding good. Peter includes that phrase in there for a reason. The role of government is to promote the order in society to aid in its flourishing. That's why he says about government, and he's, and he's talking about a government that is wicked and unfair and unrighteous. So understand the context, but woven into what he says is this. It's sent by him, speaking of God, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Not the definition that the world would give of an evildoer or who does well, but how God would view them. And so the role of government actually is for order and for flourishing. Now, notice, though, that this is not an exception clause. It's more of a common sense one. As rules center around order and taxation, we, whether we agree or not, pay the tax and obey the order, as long as it's not outside the realms of God's commands and God's purpose. There is a realm of orders and rules that we do disobey because they conflict with direct orders and commands from God. However, Peter is not condemning us to mindlessness, not thinking, and manipulation. He's not telling you that you have to follow through with what is ridiculous from them. Thus, his phrase, sent by him for punishing evildoers and the praise of those who do well. In other words, as the government functions in the role it's supposed to be, because we are always called to think. That's why he says, as free. The whole point is, it is done for our Savior. As I walk forward and I look at obedience, it is so that it brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. My criteria of obedience is much higher than just pleasing a government. My criteria of obedience is to please my Savior. My Savior does not ask me to engage in the ridiculous, but he does ask me to submit and to obey for his honor. You see, we must also understand our role. Our response gives testimony that silences the willful ignorance of rebellious people. And when you read these verses and you look at it, it's just not silencing people who don't know, 
The word in Greek is saying you're going to silence people who don't know on purpose. It silences the false claims against Christians and against Christianity and against Christ. My role in obedience and in submission is done because of my Savior, and it's done because my Savior is going to use that testimony to silence those who want to falsely accuse Christians. Years ago, I was visiting some factories in China. I was walking or talking with a manager. Uh, He was uh, a citizen of Canada, but originally from China, had gone back to run a factory there, and he was a believer. And he shared what Christians were doing at the time. They were ministering uh, to doctors. At that time, doctors were working uh, long hours battling the bird flu. And so they were trying to find a way to minister to these people. And they had made care packages that that included nourishment, snacks, but also included verses of encouragement and beyond encouragement, gospel truth. So in other words, they were reaching out to serve these doctors but they were reaching out in a way that allowed them to share God's truth with these doctors. Initially, the Chinese government was suspicious until they realized that the purpose behind these was not politically motivated or designed for a political gain. The action showed the government that Christians, though believed to be otherwise, were not anarchists starting a revolution. Their actions showed in a small way who they served and when I say in a very minuscule way, because you know the Chinese government, silence the ignorant. He shared that with me because you realize there's so many things that we can do that pushes back with our rights, and we have rights, and pushes back with our intellect and our prerogative. But here was an opportunity where they did what was good, good works, godly living. And when they ripped apart the packages, there was no underlying manipulative purpose behind it. Instead, their purpose was the gospel, was encouragement, and was help. Our goal, and this is kind of connecting it with those care packages to the doctor, uh, their goal was not an overthrow of that kingdom, but instead a promotion of God's kingdom. And our goal is not this kingdom. We serve a higher one. We glorify Christ and his kingdom when we are good citizens of the one in which we live, when we honor the positions of authority above us, knowing we serve the one above them all, which prompts Peter to tell us, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In his conversation about good works, godly living toward our government, Peter puts it all in perspective. Respect humanity. I love that component. As you look at the respect due government, it is the same as you give every person. This is respect people. They're made in God's image. You are going to love the church individually and notice the intensity of emotion increasing. You respect humanity. So we are not obnoxious, belligerent people. We're not hateful and ugly because we respect them for the Lord's sake. But then we're called to love the church Extend love, which if you go to 1st through 3rd John, if you go to the Gospel of John, our love for the church is going to preach the gospel to the world around us. It is well, is how they will know we are believers. And so we're called to love the church. It intensifies. Where is reverence given? That fear? That's to God. That's where reverent fear and honor belong. And then he closes out respect the government. 
But here, so how do we act toward our government? Do our reactions and responses have God in the center? I think if we were honestly looking at how we respond to the world around us and to our politicians, I look at my own life and rarely do I see God as the central focus of my response. I am pontificating uh, on the evils of what they do. Uh, I have opinions and I will share them, um, much to everyone's like dismay. Um, but I, I look at my responses and I don't see a mind that is centered on God. How do you respond to your politicians? Is God on your mind? Are your responses reasonable, taking into consideration what God said government's purpose is? Look, we're, God calls us to submit to the government, but in the same phrase says, look, this was my intent with government. And so he asked you to be discerning. I'm not saying he leaves room for disobedience. He leaves room for discernment. And we're to be discerning. We're not to be just manipulated by the world system at hand. So in one breath, there's submission, but there's submission with discernment there. Do we fulfill our role of a testimony that quiets the willful hater of the faith? That's the willful ignorance that's there that he's talking about. People who will use politics to go against Christianity and will our testimony, will our response silence them because we serve God in it. Now, Peter moves from the broad political view, the governmental view, which, look, if you live in a country uh, with different government situation than we have, you recognize there's less freedoms, there's less opportunities. And so government is an overarching principle that is going to change the dynamic of life. If you read church history, you watch the church opening up, Paul was able to use oftentimes his Roman citizenship to gain access or gain permission. In some of the cities, the fact that, that Rome had given permission to Judaism opened up the door for Paul to teach about Christ and the Messiah because government officials says this has already been decided. 30 years later, that possibility is moving off the table. And now it doesn't matter whether you're Jew, Christian, whatever it is, they're attacking anything that's not. Roman. And so government as an overarching rule changes oftentimes what we can do and how we can function. But you take that broad view and now you come to how we're supposed to respond toward our employers. How do we act at work? And let's think about it. Government has this overarching flavor of how life is going to function, but the day-to-day of work, now that changes a lot about your life. And just think how many hours of your life are spent at work. And so Peter writes, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, which is wicked, which is unrighteous, which is unjust. That's where he's talking about, to the people who are horrible. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscious toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you do or when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? In other words, what what glory goes to God when you disobey and are punished? <coughs> what glory is that uh, to God? He says, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And again, Peter's context regarding employment is an environment where injustice or persecution is likely taking place. 
The economy of that day was completely different than ours. That's why we leak it to employers. Those people in that situation, the majority of the population, their employment was slavery. They were owned. They were demeaned. They had no rights. An unjust master was a lifelong condemnation against them, a difficulty they walked through. Doctors were slaves and economists were slaves. You worked for these certain families. So from working the farm to handling all the finances, oftentimes that person was a servant or a slave. The church was made up of these people. Oftentimes, you can imagine that person that served a certain family in that way, high up, dealing with the finances or being their doctor, oftentimes they had positions of leadership in the church. And you can imagine if you had the person who's your master at home and then you're the one preaching in service and there was tensions there, but Peter is really zeroing in on you being in church and worshiping and and the role and the equality that you know there, and then you have to go back and work for an unjust, wicked person. That's the concept. And so this work that is constant is going to test one's ability to respond biblically because it's a constant dripping. There's no getting away from it. And to endure and submit biblically in those circumstances requires a clear focus and understanding for whom we are enduring. And there's not a lot of movement here in the sense that we submit to the government for the Lord's sake. Uh, When we come to work, it's not just the submission that is in mind, but instead all of your work is in mind. And so the idea, again, is our testimony for Christ, which makes us look at this. We need to understand the result First and foremost, this submission, and and by the way, here submission is obedience and quality work. It's not just listening what they say. That's one thing. It's still putting in a good day's work or quality work, even in light of wicked bosses, is thankworthy or might be a gracious thing, meaning this, it is beyond human expectation. You serve in a way that is, in essence, supernatural. Actions that point to something different in you, not because of something different in them. So your work now becomes a testimony to Christ because a normal earthly person would not respond this way. Your response, in essence, is unearthly. Though the wicked employer may never change, and most likely many did not, there is a clear testimony of God's change in the life of the worker, the believer, a testimony they, and I'm speaking now of the boss, and then I just put the word the oppressor, cannot deny, even though they spurn it. You see, we may look and say, well, here I am, and this, this boss of mine, this vile person, and I'm serving in this context. And again, all this submission is in light of following God's command. When we're put in a position at work that violates what God would want done and what God has commanded, we're to remove ourselves from that. But as you serve someone who presses down, that limits your ability for advancement, whatever it may be, and you serve this person, they may spurn your Christian testimony, but they cannot deny it. And tied to that, then, is we must understand the reward. This is 
acceptable with God. Or to word it differently, commendable in the sight of God. So we testify to our life's priority and how we respond at our work. We actually demonstrate for whom we work. But here's the real question for us as believers. Do we value our Savior's commendation or do we prefer the world's? Because what he offers to you as an employee, as someone working, and again, recognize the context. If you think your work situation is bad, the word servant at the beginning tells you that theirs was worse. He goes to what is the worst possible position in their society, enslaved. And he tells them to submit. Again, I want you to notice God never asks us to check who we are at the door. He never asks us to check our thinking at the door. It is just in the function of that society, he gives the worst case scenario. And he says something. He says, you'll be commendable to God. But the real question is, do I want God's commendation or I prefer the world's? Sometimes we're fortunate to have both. Just because your work is happy with you and you get promoted doesn't mean you're serving the world. That's, that's a wrong application. God and his goodness and his blessing will oftentimes give us the opportunity to work in a place where we can thrive and also share our faith and, and both can grow at the same time. But if that's not the case, if it's not a given, because it's not, and when you must choose, what will you value the highest? See, godly living drives us to value God's commendation and not the world's. It drives us again to keep him central in everything that we do. And we have to wonder, though, how is this type of living possible in this world? What could possibly be the catalyst, the driving force? Or has there been a true example of living godly while suffering unjustly? And of course, we know there is. And in all reality, Peter centers everything he's been teaching so far. So as he launched with godly living in 11 and 12, as he's moved through the government and into work, he now is going to drive us to see the reason, the center of all of instruction about godly living, and it all centers around Jesus, and for good reason. All of this is possible because of our Savior. Look at 21 through 25 and just Read through this, and I'll talk about this. He borrows heavily from Isaiah 53. He says, For even hereunto were you called. In other words, you're suffering, and he's going to talk a lot more about suffering in this book. He says, Look, this is your life. This is what you have to live through. And then he gives us the example of Christ, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. And the word there is following his footprints. He goes on, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And that's a key component of all of this. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now turned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And as I mentioned, Peter borrows heavily from Isaiah 53. 
a passage they would have understood clearly. And, and I just want to take a minute and I want to let God's word set the tone and direction of our thinking. It's hard, we'd be hard pressed to say it more elegantly or vividly. So I'm just going to read a portion of, and of course I had my bookmark right where I needed to be and slipped it out. But Isaiah 53, it might say, oh, I found it already there. Good to go. Usually when I'm up here and I have to find a book of the Bible, I'm like fumbling through forever. So if I ever call on you to read in the middle of a sermon, you know what happened. But either way, Isaiah 52, 13, I'm going to read all of 53. Take a minute and just let this sink in. This is what's on Peter's mind. This is what he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It goes here, Behold, my servant shall do deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had, been, had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before a shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul into death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And I think you can see there, as you compare it to what Peter wrote, how connected he was to God's word, to a passage that they would have known. And now the Holy Spirit, again, using those same words. And what Peter is doing is taking God's word and shining a bright light on what our Lord Jesus Christ endured for us, showing us how we are to endure for him and because of him. But to do so, we must understand what he did. I'm going to walk through it briefly. Uh, there's plenty of preachers that take that passage and we're going to make a whole sermon out of it. I wanted us to see the beauty of God's word and just walk through what Peter is trying to say in, 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 in the midst of godly living. So in the context of why we endure or why we live the way we do and why we live for him. 
One, he stepped out of heaven to take on the burden of humanity. He lived perfectly doing and saying nothing that was wrong. And I want you to realize that, saying nothing that was wrong. It's hard to process that because we quickly get into trouble with our mouths, do we not? I can't tell you the number of babies, cute little sinners that they are, where I think when they can form words and explain what they're thinking, they're going to be in trouble. We sin quickly with our mouths. We know that. We spout off very fast. And that's why scripture tells us he lived a perfect life and emphasized the fact that he never vocalized any sin. He never thought anything that was wrong. He endured because he was committed to God the Father and his plan of redemption. When you read the prayers in the Gospels and he's petitioning God, he's staring at, Christ is staring at a separation with the Father that's never occurred in all eternity. As he took on sin, God the Father literally has to turn his back on him. Not figuratively, not theoretically, really had to do that. But Christ was committed to God's purpose and to whom he could trust, to him that judgeth righteously. I put a question here just to to make us think. Have we committed ourselves to the only one who judges righteously or have we desperately chased the world's okay? I would venture this as you think about who you're pleasing, that you can never please yourself and you can never please this world and that the world ultimately will never be forever okay with you. But there is our Lord and Savior, our God, our Heavenly Father, who will judge righteously, who lays out the the framework of what he demands as a holy God, and it never changes or shifts. And so I would encourage all of us as believers to follow Christ's example and commit ourselves to him who judgeth righteously. And there's only one, and that's God. He bore our sin, our death, so that we could live by whose stripes you were healed. And so we must understand now what he accomplished. And I want to make this in a very personal way for us. Verse 25, ye were as sheep gone astray. What does that mean? You were lost. You were wandering towards certain destruction, helpless. And Peter's trying to say him, you were completely unhelpable. You couldn't fix yourself. You couldn't take care of this problem. And now you're redeemed. We have a heavenly purpose and a truly supreme Lord and leader. Because suddenly now, from what we were before, we are now committed to him. I'm on Second Peter. That's why I was like, man, I did not read right. Um, going here, it says here, for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned or turned. It's repentance. The word there is repent and, and committed unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You have a heavenly purpose. You have a heavenly father. And you have a truly supreme Lord and leader. As he's walked us through government and he's walked us through employer who can feel like bad government at times, I know. And you you walk through that and you realize that he ends with this idea, but you have and serve the supreme Lord and leader. Why endure suffering? Why strive to live godly? Why be an example? Well, it's all simple. Because of your Savior. 
no other reason we need to give. But here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Is our Savior reason enough? And the answer is supposed to be a resounding yes. But if it's not, you need to truly examine yourself and not stop just because it gets uncomfortable or involves too much change. Is Christ enough? Well, of course he is. He's beyond compare. He's beyond sufficient. But when you look at living a godly life and you say, yeah, but I don't want to give up that much. It's not worth all that. Well, in that moment, get uncomfortable. Dig deep. Don't stop. Continue until you know without a doubt that he is more than sufficient for any call on your life. It's hard to imagine being able, but Peter's not even giving him the excuse to wander outside of that. He says, you are able, and it's because of your Savior. Godly living hits street level in these verses. 11 and 12, it started dealing with our thinking and our actions, but Peter doesn't connect it. And then he moves right after that in his letter, and he says, now let's look at your government, which is horrible and wicked and not obeying its laws. And how do you act there? And who's central to your actions? And he said, how about your work? As bad as it may be, who's central and what are you going to do and what's your role? And then he points to the Savior. See, he's going to continue probing at the street level because next on our list is marriage and families. Why? Because God desires his children to live for him in the everything of life. We live for him the every day and in the everything of life. We subject all to his glory and for his purpose. I'm not going to pretend that that's an easy call, nor is Peter. That's why he lists what he lists. That's why he gives the, the instructions that he gives. But why do we do this? Why do we subject all to his glory and for his purpose? Because of our Savior. And there can be no higher reason than that. Let's pray together. And Father, thank for the opportunity we have to come and study your word, to dive in, understand your calling for godly living, it's not an easy calling. It's not easy to think about uh, submitting to a, a, a wicked employer, doing the job and knowing that there will be no thanks from them, that the world will not acknowledge your work, not acknowledge your contribution, that the world can quickly steal anything that you do and take credit for it. But we have to understand that when we work when we obey and give quality work, even in that environment, that we're commended by you. And we're confronted with what we really want in life, to have your commendation or to have this world's. We're extremely grateful uh, when you give us the blessing of having both, but Lord, keep our motive linked to you. As we look at our government and it provides us with quite the, the list of difficult decisions to be made. We see the involvement we have and how we can select leaders, but every one of them is a sinful person. And Lord, as we're called to obey, help us to submit to the government with you in mind. That we keep 
your call and your life central to our lives. Uh, we recognize that we're given the permission and actually command by you to be discerning, uh, to be thinking, to not be mindless and not to be manipulated. And we're grateful for that. We also recognize that we serve a higher kingdom. And as we strive in the world that we live in, as we work and we try to orchestrate and uh, to have a government that honors you and, and to have work that honors you, let us not lose sight of your kingdom. Let us not lose sight of your purpose. Let's have every decision we make align with you and having you central to our thoughts. In your precious and holy name, amen.